You have a prepaid call. You will not be charged for this call. This call is from... Federal Prison. This call is being recorded and is subject to monitoring. Hang up to decline the call or to accept. Dial 5 now. Hello. Hello, Charles. Yes, how are you doing? Very good to speak to you, sir. How are you doing? All right. From the Times of Northwest Indiana, this is Byline. A show about one Chicagoland newspaper's most interesting stories and the reporters who tell them. I'm Kale Wilk. I'm Andrew Jones. And for our first episode ever, we're ironically going to tell the story of a goodbye. Um, so it's basically a two-year program. Um, so it's not a guarantee that you'll work there forever, but... And of a fighter who's trying to break free from his past. I made the worst mistake of my life, and it changed, changed my life. I lost my life. This is like the secret entrance. Yeah, this is like the This is Elvia. Door, so if you just walk down there, Beautiful. Okay, hold on. Thank you, okay. Elvia. All right, thank you. Have a good day. So every week, we're going to bring a little bit of a different take on a story from the newspaper. And we'll talk to the reporter who wrote the story. Over time, if you listen long enough, you'll get to know some of the people on the Times staff, their beats, their methods, their thoughts, a little bit of the behind the scenes. Then we'll broadcast it to you. And for the first time, you can hear the newspaper story and the person who wrote it. Pretty rare, but uh, pretty cool, right? Okay. So back to the goodbye. Yeah, well, I guess my podcasts are like. As we were saying, this is Elvia, and in a week she won't work here at the Times anymore. Okay. Um, My name is Elvia Maligon, and I'm a staff writer at the Times of Northwest Indiana, and I cover crime and justice. Elvia's been at the Times for three years. She's an East Chicago native and started out her career in reporting in Florida where she uh, didn't report crime, but she got a small taste of it. So I actually moved to Lakeland, Florida, and I worked for the Ledger there for about a year and a half. Um, One of the stories that I worked on was um, this man who was accused of killing his grandmother, and it was just like an absolutely horrific homicide. I mean, she was like really like murdered. I mean, she was like stabbed to death. He used like a bow and arrow. Um, At the uh, NWI Times, uh, Elvia works the crime and justice beat, so her job is pretty dramatic, Um, to say the least. So some of the things that I've covered in the past three and a half years, it's mostly been a lot of crime, a lot of courts, so a lot of murder trials. Can you also tell us what a typical day might look for you? Mm -hmm. Um, So a typical day starts at 8.30. I sit through the morning court calls. in the Lake County Government Center. So for anyone that hasn't done that before, it's a pretty surprising look into how our criminal justice system works because it's just like case after case being called. And um, my schedule, I feel like, is very dependent on what everyone else is doing because, for example, if a trial is going on, my day is sort of heavily consumed by covering that. Um, But other times, for example, um, if there isn't a trial going on, I try to work on other enterprise ideas. 
probably the biggest story that I've covered or helped cover is um, the Darren Vaughn case, uh, who's a suspected serial killer. Um, his case is still pending in Lake County Criminal Courts, and he's accused of killing seven women. As uh, Kale and I read over Elvia's work in preparation to speak with her, and as we listened to her talking about her job, we tried to think about the question that perhaps everybody has for reporters. How do they stay objective in the middle of reporting material that is so human? On a pretty consistent basis, Elvia deals with cases that range from the fascinating to the appalling to the immensely sad. But being in the courtroom so often helps. A big part of Elvia's job is listening to cases and, as always, knowing and reporting the facts. I really enjoy covering the courts just because everything's constantly changing. There's always like unfolding drama. I think in courts it's actually a little bit more easier just because... So sometimes when you work on a story, for example, if um, you're just doing like cops reporting and you're basically getting information just from the police or um, from officials unless you actually go out and talk to some of the people involved like go out to the neighborhood and stuff then you could get kind of the tidbits um, to balance it out but in courts I mean all you have to do is like sit in the gallery and you get to hear from people um, from the state and the defense I listen to a lot of closing statements and um, a lot of the times, you know, I'll listen to the state give their closings, and I'm like, man, they they brought up a lot of good points. Maybe this person is guilty. But then I listen to the defense closing statements, and I'm like, man, those are good points too. So at the end of the day, I think I'm just like happy that I'm not a juror that's sort of deciding um, the fate of a person. But um, and this is the rule yeah, of law for like, reporters. Something that you have so to know up front like, if you're going to listen to this show. Reporters have to stay away from bias, opinion, and subjectivity. Everybody knows this. From early on in our education, we learned to take I, me, and my out of our essays and stick to what we know. This is the uncontested way to report the facts best. We have to be a little bit mechanical to stay objective. This is especially true for reporters. But, as Elvia says, the reporter part of her doesn't get in the way of the human part. She still um, sees the humanity of her stories. You know, there's real people um, on both sides of the story. So a lot of the stories are crime stories. So even if someone's charged and they're charged with something, accused of doing something really horribly, that still doesn't change that that person is a human being and that person has a family that probably cares about him or her. Um, so I think it's just important to sort of remember that. This is what drew Elvia to journalism in the first place. When she was in high school, Elvia was a self-proclaimed nerd who loved reading and writing and who learned about Indiana University's journalism program through her yearbook teacher. When she ended the program a few years later, she learned that there were different kinds of journalism and not all of them were what she wanted to do. Well, one of the things that I really like about especially I would say especially like newspaper reporting and especially covering communities like the communities that the Times covers is that I feel like you're covering and you're actually talking about real people um, so I like that just because I remember I was an intern in Washington DC and I felt like everything was staged there were always sort of prepared talking points as opposed to when you're reporting here in the community it's actually real people it's their real lives 
Um, and it's also my community because I was born and raised here. Um, Elvia grew up in East Chicago, and after college and an internship in D.C. and a job in Florida for a couple of years, she's back in her hometown reporting on the community she's so familiar with. But like we said, she's leaving, and if you stick around until the end of this episode, you can hear a little bit more about where and why. Uh, But for now, let's dive into one of Elvia's very last stories with the NWI Times, the case of Charles Tanner, nickname Duke. A first happened for Elvia. She had the chance to speak with an inmate, Charles Duke Tanner, when he was being housed in Illinois. Now he's in a facility in Lisbon, Ohio, which is around 400 miles away from northwest Indiana. Originally from Gary, he's one of a little over 38,000 prisoners who have received the benefit of a federal change dating back to 2014. Duke was a competitor. He um, was a really famed like local boxer, so kind of like a local celebrity for Northwest Indiana. Um, he had a pretty good chance of making it and becoming a professional boxer. I think he was even like supposed to fight, have some fights like broadcast on like ESPN or some sort of like cable network. At age 24, he had an undefeated record, 19 and 0. He was ready to compete for a title fight in September 2004. And then? Um, and then he gets indicted for distributing drugs and sort of that sort of flipped the narrative completely. Based on Elvia's discussions with Tanner, boxing brought in the money. He was, after all, headed for stardom with a 19-0 record at the top of his game. But he recalled waiting until each fight to once again be somewhat financially stable. So he sought other avenues to try and earn more. The case actually went to trial, and he was found guilty of distributing drugs. Tanner was alleged to be the leader of a gang in Gary called the Renegades, which he envisioned as a positive group to go against other gangs' culture and drugs. But it didn't happen. According to Elvia's reporting, he was convicted in 2006 of conspiracy to possess and intend to distribute five kilograms of cocaine, which earned him a life sentence. And also, according to her reporting, by 2009, he said he felt like he was going to die in there. But now the interesting thing is, Duke is no longer serving for life. He's actually expected to serve 14 more years and be released by October 2030. So, how did he get there? Well, first, it's thanks to the U.S. Sentencing Commission, which, in 2014, amended how long prisoners would serve for drug convictions. In an effort to reduce overpopulated prisons and allocate more funding to other entities like law enforcement or crime prevention programs, the Sentencing Commission reduced how long those convicted of drug-related crimes would have to serve by decreasing their associated offense levels. Now, what are those? Well, in determining sentences, the Commission has these offense levels, which are like rungs on a ladder, where different crimes correspond to different offense levels. The more serious the crime, the higher the offense level, of which there are 43. For example, copyright infringement has a base offense level of 8, and robbery is base offense level 20. In turn, each offense level corresponds to a certain amount of years in prison. At level 37, one is at the very edge of receiving life sentences. However, it gets a little bit complex. Actually, a lot complex. Elvia mentioned several times that even she had a hard time keeping up with the twists and turns in these laws. 
Basically, there are a lot of things that go into deciding how long someone will stay in prison. So let's give another example with burglary. You get base offense level 17 if it was a residence, and level 12 if it wasn't. The level increases if there was more than minimal planning that went into the crime. And then more levels get added, the more money was lost because of it. See where I'm going with this? And then if a firearm was used, that adds on more levels. So your base offense of 12 can easily jump to 18, which equates more time in prison. The sentencing commission starts out with the base offense level for the seriousness of a crime. Then it takes these special characteristics into account, like possessing a firearm during the crime. Next, there can be adjustments made depending, for example, on how involved someone was. Like if you really didn't participate or if you were an obstruction of justice. And then what if there's multiple counts of conviction? Well, that's added in too to make the sentencing guideline. Then bring the judge into the picture and he, she, or they can adjust the final decision based on whether or not the offender pleaded guilty and on past criminal history. So, by the end of this, you can see how this feels somewhat, well, gray. There's actually like sort of an internal debate, I guess, between like academics over whether this was a good thing or a bad thing. Like there's one camp that says, you know, this is a good thing because judges have more discretion and they could really look at the person and sort of craft a sentence specifically for that person. But there's other people that are saying that, well, this gives, this can lead to greater disparity because maybe judges, for example, some of them might look might say I want to stick to really focusing on drug quantities and I'm going to stick to the guidelines and so it could basically lead to two cases being sort of similar and having completely different outcomes. Well what about Tanner? He was given level 44. That means life. In 2014 the Sentencing Commission's amendment reduced offense levels for most drug-related crimes by two. Thus Inmates like Tanner had the option to petition to receive a reduction in their sentence, which he successfully did. He spent time in the law library at his facility, crafted a petition, and was decreased to level 42, which can allow for numbered sentences. His was set at 30, and he has 14 more to go. He definitely was like pretty persuasive, and I mean, he's a very well-spoken person. I remember when I talked to Duke, he you could tell like he knew this information like better than I did because he was just like sort of explaining stuff and I was like trying to write down notes and I was like can you explain that again like I'm not following you we wanted to know what Tanner himself thought about this so we called him or rather he called us hello hello Charles yes how you doing very good to speak to you sir how are you doing he has a limited amount of time to talk each month, but he used some of that time to let us know where he stands today on what the rest of his life looks like for him. And in my situation, it was I was persecuted to death. You know what I mean? They gave me a life sentence, so I had to really grow up and I had to really go out of it. So everything that I, it's like I'm resurrected. So therefore, I have a job to do, and it's to help. This world is going on out there right now. Just Tanner's story seems to be one of fall and redemption in a way. Throughout the years, it's popped up over and over as the local boxing legend from Gary plotted towards freedom. It's that fighting spirit, says Tanner, the stuff he was famous for before the conviction, that keeps him going. Listen, man, 
it, it, it's a quote that I go by that say hard trials are virtue in order to establish truth. When you go through trials and you go through tribulation, the truth of your character, the truth of you, you know what I mean? The real you come out when you go through something. Now, I'm just an, I'm, I'm a fighter by birth, you know what I mean? I, I, I came into this situation, you know what I mean? And I, I, I went through what I went through, but, but the boxing and the discipline that I learned from a kid has helped He's hopeful. He said to me, quote, a 30-year sentence still isn't acceptable. I think Obama knows that. I think that's why they're giving all these people clemency, and that's why I think I'm going to be on the next list, unquote. In June this year, the president shortened the sentences of 42 men in prison on drug-related convictions, bringing the total number of men and women he's commuted sentences for to 348. I believe that, at its heart, said the president in a WhiteHouse.gov video, America is a nation of second chances. I made the worst mistake of my life, and it changed, changed my life. I lost my life, you know what I mean? And then sometimes people don't know how to wake up. It feels like every day you wake up, you're going to die in prison. You know what I mean? It, 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 it's hard to feel, but I can explain that feeling because I've been through it. You know what I mean? So... so just looking at all that, you gotta keep fighting. You know what I mean? And 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 and, and that's what I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna lay down. You know what I mean? I never I never quit it in boxing. I, I never lost in boxing as a professional. So I'm not gonna lose in this situation. Today, life for Tanner is pretty optimistic. He spends his days researching his case, waiting for news about clemency status, talking with his family and friends and supporters over the phone. He talks to his son. Too. Gives him advice over the phone and email as money allows. He said, quote, I don't sugarcoat anything. I tell my son every action has a reaction. That's our favorite line, unquote. I've been following I've been I've been following and doing my homework on everything. That's a part of fighting. I study it just like getting ready for a fight. I did the last motion to get to life. Another thing that we thought about putting together this story is the idea of the war on drugs, which dates back to the Nixon administration, and uh, what may be a shifting attitude toward how our American society perceives drugs. Uh, like we mentioned before with President Obama, there seems to be a pretty clear stance in this administration that sentencing perhaps proves too severe for drug-related crimes. And change does happen in bits and pieces, so we might be witnessing the beginning of history in cases like Tanner's. At least Tanner seems to think so. He says the best example of that change is happening right now. I'm a poster boy for the changing of the law throughout America. You know what I mean? Look at my case and look at everything. If we can fix these laws, I'm willing to sit down with these people. I'm willing to speak for the people that hear so many men that I've been around that don't have a voice. I want to be the voice for them, and that's a part of my calling, and I'm not going to stop talking about it. We got to do that. We got to change that. You know what I mean? I'm not picking, saying that, okay, well, this person that murdered this person should get this, or this person that sold this should get this. If you break a law, you should punish. But it, it, me giving double life in prison at 24 years old for my first arrest of my life, no one in, in, in the world can understand that. You know what I mean? And I'm still sitting in prison 30 years. That's, that's, I mean, it's it's unbelievable. But, hey, I had to go through it for a reason. You know what I mean? And, and I'm not bitter. I'm not mad or, or anything. I just want to, I don't want no one else to go through this. I want to help other people that's been through it. I want to, 
I want to change. That's my goal. I wake up every day thinking about that. But we aren't here to debate the nature, morality, or effects of drugs, which are other tangents containing the umbrella of this whole topic. Like Elvia said, it's complicated. But if Tanner's case has done anything, it's asked a question, and one that's still hanging in the air for him and for Northwest Indiana and for America. One of the things that Elvia says she's learned in the course of this job is that there's a lot of gray areas. And maybe that's the moral of Duke's story. For good or for bad, the thing about justice is that it changes. The NWI Times has been reporting on Duke's case for the past seven years. In the short time that we have here, we couldn't possibly tell you every single detail about how Duke's father died of an aneurysm, or about how his mom has suffered from three strokes, or how his brother was involved in a federal manhunt, and how he actually lives in the cell right next to Duke in Lisbon, Ohio, right now. Or how his faith and companionship in prison has kept him going all these years. Or how Tanner left a fiancé and a young boy, now in his mid-teens, on the outside. All of these details, mixed with the complexity of the sentencing process in 2016, prove that the road ahead for Tanner and other inmates like him isn't light, but it isn't dark either. It's gray. Nothing is ever set in stone. Um... This is the Duke Tanner story is one example of that. I mean, obviously, people who like read the story um, when it was first on, you know, he was sentenced to life, but it's like, oh, wait a minute, not really, because we have these changes. Um, so I would say that. And I mean, even sometimes when people, um, I'm thinking of the last murder trial that I covered, which was like two weeks ago, or maybe a week ago, um, it was this guy and on that Monday that the trial started, he faced two murder charges. Um, and that Monday, they dismissed one of the murder charges, the state. And then by Wednesday, he had been acquitted of the other murder charge. So it's like this guy started off being accused of a double homicide. And, you know, by the end of it, he got convicted of a misdemeanor. But I mean, that's sort of minor compared to what he could have faced if he would have been convicted of murder. Going back to what we said in the beginning so of the story like about objectivity, is ever said this so is a reporter's is life. What it seems in essence, wrong. the gray area is one of the main reasons they have to stay so focused on facts. Anything can change at any time. And you'd think this would be a stressful job, full of threads and bits and pieces that are so hard to keep track of. But that's not how people like Elvia see it. So it's a, I feel like it's not so much... Nothing is like uh, black and white. It's like a lot more gray, a lot more complex, a lot more layers. Do you like that? Yeah, I do. Mm -hmm. I think that's like real life. In fact, she likes it enough that it's part of her next step in life. Like we said at the beginning, Elvia is leaving the Times for another job, but one not so different um, from this one. In August, I'm joining the Chicago Tribune and I'm doing their two-year residency program. Um, so I'm pretty excited. Can you explain that? Um, so it's basically a two-year program. Um, so it's not a guarantee that you'll work there forever, but it's sort of uh, a way to get, I guess it's entry or mid-level reporters into um, a bigger newspaper like the Chicago Tribune. And um, for one of the years that I'll be there, I'll be helping out with their crime and overnight coverage. So that should be really interesting. 
Well, I think one of the goals, and probably this is probably also the goals of like the editors who hired me, is um, to put a little more of like a human face and try to get actual stories behind the violence. Because I mean, everyone sort of reads every weekend like the weekend tallies of like how many people were shot, how many people were killed, which is usually like a really outrageous number. Um, so I think putting a little bit more context behind that and sort of trying to figure out some stories about why that's happening. Elvia says that she likes the balance of reporting in her job. She loves the courtroom. She likes talking to people and getting their story. And like any good reporter, she knows that when she puts her pen to paper, she's entering a timeline of people's lives, if only for a moment. Duke's life is no exception. Elvia is one of a handful of reporters to share a little bit of his story to try to paint that gray area with black and white facts. And Duke is thankful for that. He wants to get the word out about what's happened to him. Elvia is a conduit for Tanner's story, just like any journalist. Yeah, most definitely as well. So we'll see what happens. Elvia, thank you so much once again. Yeah. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Good luck. Head to the shower After we talked with Elvia, she took us out the us. back door. We'll the front one was locked because it was late right. in the evening. We'll see you. What's this one? We're locked in. Uh-oh. We could As we head here, out, something that Elvia said is ringing in our heads. Yeah, so I think a lot of people think that Indiana is sort of like, just like this sleepy state where nothing happens, but there's actually a lot that happens in Northwest Indiana. Um, Indiana is not sleepy. If we learn anything from Elvia, it's that there are a lot of stories out here. Stories that are complex and interesting and black and white and gray. It's not easy to find and tell these stories, but that's the business of newspapers. That's the business of reporters. So that's where this show will start, with Elvia's goodbye, and with one of her last and most interesting stories. We hope you'll listen in every week for a glimpse of this region from the eyes of the people covering it. We're right there with you, pulling the curtain aside to see the inner workings of the reporters and the Northwest Indiana Times and the lives of the people in this fascinating region. And hopefully, we too can tell some good stories along the way. Byline is a production of the Times of Northwest Indiana. We'll have new episodes and more stories and topics to ponder each week. You can find this podcast and many other sound bites from the Times at nwi.com slash podcasts. We appreciate your feedback, so come on over to the site and check us out. We appreciate constructive comments and feedback. Reporting for this episode came from Elvia Malagon, as well as Kale Wilk and myself, Andrew Jones. Kale and I also produce and edit the show. Thanks to our editor and the show's creator, Summer Moore, digital and audience engagement editor at The Times, and captain of the ship that is this show. I'm Kale Wilk. I'm Andrew Jones. And from both of us here in Northwest Indiana, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your week.